Number 767 has been announced, and we're delighted to mark that. And we'll use that, of course, later in the service, if it be the will of God later on tonight. As always, we're very thankful, certainly, for the presence of each and every one, our membership, our visitors alike. We're always delighted to be able to come together in the name of the God of heaven and to do our part in offering a service that He would find pleasing and acceptable. You may have noticed, in fact, I think it was already commented tonight as you look ahead to the sermon topics, and certainly always invite you to do that. We're going to talk about snow somewhat tonight. As I made preparation for that, certainly wasn't aware there would be snow in the forecast, but uh, interestingly enough, things do work out in a, in a very fortuitous way from time to time. And so tonight, as we give a thought to some Bible lessons based upon snow, these introductory thoughts will move us to give thought to the direction we'll be heading, quite frankly. But as you look at that particular set of ideas, isn't it amazing how the Bible... The inspired Word of God can present lessons, truths to you and me in a way that quite often is so amazingly memorable because it is couched in the language that's so familiar to us. Jesus told His apostles in Matthew 4, 19, Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. We understand what it's like to fish. They knew what it was like to fish in that part of the world, and yet the Lord took that idea and used it to teach a valid and unforgettable lesson that those apostles would spend the remainder of their days striving to bring those by way of catching fish, if you please, catching people to serve Jesus. Zechariah spoke in Zechariah 7 verse 12 about stubborn people. You and I know somewhat about individuals that can choose to behave like that. And he said, you folks are like adamant stones. Now that word adamant stone, just a reflection of people who are rebellious and they're stubborn. They won't change their mind. They won't listen to the facts. Maybe one last example would be sowing seed. We know what it's like to sow seed. And yet Jesus used that to teach about the heart and the kinds of responses people can give to the Lord. I'd like to suggest that there are some interesting lessons about snow, things about snow that you and I can use to live a life better in service to God. We're going to study tonight on some Bible lessons drawn from snow. As we do all of that, might I ask you to notice, snow isn't mentioned all that often in the Bible. Twenty-five times is all the full number of direct occurrences in which verses make reference to snow. But yet we'll learn several things about those references. Things not only about the actual occurrence of snow, but some other things about it that really are meaningful to us in a very direct way. No wonder that light, let's close that slide and appreciate observation number one. When you and I think about snow... It's certainly almost immediate that you and I know that there are certain parts of the world that do not appreciate or at least experience snow. Like the equator, the tropical regions, the temperature just isn't sufficient for it. But doesn't that indicate that given that the Bible does mention it, it reminds us that in that part of the world, this area of Canaan, it was at least something that they could understand, the nature of snow. Let's develop it like this. We know that the Bible lands, at least to some extent, do experience snow. Now, it's not frequent. 
It's not as if it's hard winters like Canada and places like that. Geographically speaking, in the lower-lying regions like in Jerusalem, snows would be very rare. But on occasion, they do, ha- they do happen. But the high regions, up in the mountains, some of those mountains stay snow-covered year-round. I use that to ask you to note this. The Bible mentions exactly some occasions in which snow fell in Jerusalem and in the other areas. What about the heroism of Benaiah? In 2 Samuel 23, here it was said that this man on a snowy day killed a lion. Now you and I may think that that's a rather unusual statement to be put in the Bible, and yet it does tell us it really did snow a lot, at least on that occasion. And yet the bravery of this man to face this rather ferocious lion, and he did so. That's mentioned again in 1 Chronicles 11.22. Maybe it is in that light. I would call upon you to note this. Just as you would expect, it has to be cold in order to snow. Well, the Bible teaches that in Proverbs 25 and even comments something about the blessedness and the beauty of a mother and a woman who prepare her family for times of snow. Because it says her family, her children, don't worry about the snow. They've got adequate clothing Mother has made sure of it. Maybe you and I can recollect occurrences in which our parents made sure that even in the midst of cold and even in the midst of rather chilling considerations, we had the adequate and necessary things to, in fact, stay warm. And so the Bible, at least in that way, uses snow to help teach us about provision. Isn't it said about ants in Proverbs chapter 6? In light of the coming winter, they get ready in the summer. Wouldn't that be wise advice for all of us as well? To make sure that we take adequate measure and to prepare for the cold when there's adequate opportunity for preparation. Thus, we mustn't be slothful, mustn't be lazy, mustn't be those who fail to appreciate the urgency of that moment. Perhaps one final thought. I would use this to remind each of us the occurrence of snow about the fact of the control of God. Our God is in control, not only of weather, but in control of all aspects and all particulars of His universe. One could begin in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and highlight His creative activity, of course, and understand the thoroughness and the ordered fashion in which He brought this world into its being and the entire universe with it. And yet a part of that are the various laws which would allow precipitation in the form of snow to happen. To that, could we add the following? You may notice in Genesis 8, verse 22, God specifically told Noah on that occasion. Now this was after the flood, and God had just destroyed things, of course, with that flood. But He told Noah, "...until time shall continue." There will be seed time and harvest and heat and cold. Now, he didn't specifically use the word snow, but doesn't he remind us about the cycles that give reference to the nature of this planet and that they're going to continue until the end of time? With all of that said, God's control is highlighted with this very special observation. Could I invite your attention to Isaiah 45, verse number 18? In that verse, we have a very dramatic truth presented. 
And it's one that it would seem has a bearing on the occurrence of snow and a bearing on some of the other aspects of our weather. That verse reads like this. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God Himself that formed the earth and made it, He hath established it, He created it not in vain, He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. May we never forget that this planet upon which we live, although there may be occasions when snow is inconvenient, and there may be occasions when it brings an element of treachery to travel, and maybe it brings another appreciation of difficulty for various and sundry reasons. May we never forget, God made this earth to be inhabited. Its climate, the attributes of what it offers, all of that have been put in place for the special purpose so that the human family can live here. As astronomers turn their telescopes to the various places in the heavens, And although a number of other planet-like objects have been found, none, and may I repeat, none, are even close to earth. In terms of the temperature character, in terms of the location, in terms of the other attributes and necessary accompaniments for the occurrence of habitation. Isaiah 45, 18, God, why did you make earth like this so unique? I made it to be inhabited. And so it is. The snow was just one attribute of that habitation. But perhaps another lesson. Not only is it true that the snow teaches us that much, but I thought some pictures might at least be worth our while. The very mention of snow. I believe all would agree that in its place it certainly can be beautiful and it certainly can have a degree of impressiveness about it. Quite often it's so quiet after a snowfall. Quite often it is impressively reminding of the great power of peacefulness. That picture is again some particular picture. I don't even know where it is. I just found that picture and thought I would utilize it. But what about another lesson? After snow falls, you and I understand that on many occasions the degree of its melting can also be very valuable. And the Bible speaks about this. What could be said about melting snow? Here are some initial thoughts. In Proverbs 26, verse number 1, the inspired writer there highlighted there's a time for snow, but there's also a time without snow. A time in which the temperature is too high. A time when other features and attributes are not sufficient for it. Along that line, no wonder then it's possible to say, that means snow is going to melt. Melting snow. Now you and I know very well some of the things that naturally accompany snow that melts. Could I add these observations? The people in Palestine were keenly aware of how important melting snow is. Geographically on Sunday mornings, I know we've given quite a bit of thought to the land of Canaan, the battles that took place there, and the people of Israel's conquering of that place. And along the while, we've always mentioned some mountains, frequently names. Would you be impressed that in the northern part of Palestine, when snow falls on those mountains, and it does so in a rather extensive amount, in the spring that melting snow is what produces the waters by and large of the Jordan River. And therefore that melting snow provides the necessary water for the people in that part of the world. 
they depend on that melting snow, the water therefrom, for their drinking water, for the other necessary waters of their life. No wonder the Bible speaks then about the melting snow and how vital it was. Could I invite your attention to verses like Job 6, verse 16? That ancient patriarch, he himself spoke about water that comes from snow. Snow water. And as he referred to it, he did so in a context reminiscent of and impressively reminding of how important that was to them. Later on, in Job 9, verse number 30, something similar mentioned again. Perhaps to that list we could add this. Job 24, verse number 19. One more time, the writer Job highlighted that those waters is such that they would provide large amounts of water for the Jordan River in the springtime. And you and I notice the people of Israel crossed that Jordan at exactly flood stage. And we noted what a great miracle that was for God to have stopped that water. It's in that context that we notice here later in the year, the Jordan River isn't nearly that large. In the summertime, for example, its waters have dried up far more noticeably. Aren't you impressed that our God chose Israel to cross that river at exactly the time when it would have been the most impressive it would have been the most reminiscent of the great God and His power that made it possible. To that, let's add another observation. Our God's in control of these attributes of weather. That's the very point of Job 38. Could I invite you to notice an interesting observation that's made in that chapter? I've asked you to observe chapter 37 first, verse number 6. Job 37, verse number 6. This is in one of the closing chapters before God begins an immediate address. The following statement is made. For he saith to the snow, Be thou on the earth, likewise to the small rain and to the great rain of his strength. This Bible writer asserted that that snow is on the earth when the God of heaven gives it its command to be here. Again in verse number 6, Be thou upon the earth when he saith it to the snow. I hope as you and I reflect upon that snow when it does occur, that we'll at least remember the great one who is behind the occurrence of anything that happens on this earth. He's in control of all of it. Perhaps one final thought on that slide, and it's this one. This idea of melting snow fits in rather naturally to a larger discussion of water and its occurrence on this planet. Again, you're probably aware that as other bodies in the universe are observed, one of the things that we know that life requires, you and I must have water. And yet, scientists are finding it difficult to locate any other heavenly bodies that possess it. And yet here, you and I might ask, where does the water end up going? Why doesn't it run out? May we assert this? Mankind now knows it, but the Bible taught it a long time before man figured it out. There is a cycle, a water cycle. Jeremiah spoke of it in Jeremiah 10. Isaiah referenced it in Isaiah as well. That water that falls from the clouds in the form of rain or the form of snow, we know when it melts, it generates groundwater and rivers <laughs> 
And ultimately, as that makes its way to the oceans and other places, it evaporates, and the cycle repeats all over again. How did the Bible writers know of the water cycle thousands of years before scientists discovered it? You and I know the answer to that. Those who wrote the Bible weren't just writing it based on their scientific knowledge. They were writing based on the providential information and revelation given to them by the God of heaven. That's how Isaiah knew about it. That's how Jeremiah knew about it. May you and I never forget, this book is remarkably unique. There is no other book like it because this one's inspired. This is the one, in fact, that the God of heaven has made available and provided to and for us. The writings of men are not equal to it. No wonder then the control of God, highlighted in Isaiah 55, verse number 10, reminds us that even in matters like these, how important it is to remember the control of our God. Lesson number three. At this point, might we again observe another picture. You can see snow off to the side of that picture, but then a rather large-looking creek and perhaps reminiscent of melting snow in the water that comes from it. We looked at some pictures of the Jordan River at flood stage back when we made that study of Joshua chapter 3, and we highlighted the largeness of that river on that occasion. Lesson number 3, and I've included the picture with this one just so that you can look at it as we discuss it. In Job chapter 38, one chapter forward from our location of a moment ago, you might observe an interesting statement made in verse 22 of that chapter. In order to prepare us slightly for the discussion that takes place, Job throughout that book, you and I remember, had suffered greatly, and his friends had been little comfort to him. And yet, as chapter 38 comes before us, God now intervenes in the sense that He addresses Job. He finally wishes to confront Job with some of the matters that Job was at least doubting. When he arrives at verse number 22, God speaking said this, "...hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow?" And immediately to your mind and mine might come a question, what are treasures of the snow? What may God have had in mind? Now, this man Job, of course, lived a long, long time ago, and he didn't have microscopes, and he didn't have the fine scientific instruments available to us. Would Job have fully appreciated the treasures of the snow? I suspect the answer to that's no. Given the other things in that chapter, and many of them, Job would quickly have had to say, God, I don't know. Today, what are some of the things we understand about treasure as it relates to snow? Could I invite you to consider these? One of the remarkable features about snow is this. Of course, you and I understand it's a frozen kind of precipitation, but it has a crystalline structure. To say that is to say this. The crystalline structure is remarkably unique. Every single snowflake is unlike every other. Because as the water freezes, as the crystals form, again, they truly are remarkable in that they often have incredible shapes, but every one of them is unlike every other. They truly are unique. Could that have been a part of what God had in mind as He referenced the treasures of the snow? 
perhaps. But in addition to that, could we say this? Isn't this a reminder? If our God can construct principles in which every snowflake is unique, and every attribute, regardless of how many there are, are unlike all the others, isn't that a reminder of the creativity of our God and the great power to be seen in His creation? I would invite you to note some of these verses. God's unlimited power is highlighted in texts such as Matthew 13, 44. Jesus there, of course, speaking a parable taught about the treasure hid in a field. Now that treasure was referring to the gospel. Could I invite us to keep in mind as we think about the treasures of snow, may we never forget the treasure that is the gospel. Do you and I value it? Jesus spoke of it there as if a man found a treasure in a field would sell everything he has to acquire possession of that field which has the treasure in it. Do you and I value the gospel like that? Do we really? It certainly is something to seriously consider because the gospel is what will be that message that yields the eternal salvation for you and me as we make compliance with it. There at the bottom of that slide, I've showed a picture Maybe if you're close enough, you could see, as the light reflects also of it, you could see the crystalline structure of that snow. May we again remember every flake is unique. Every one of them is unlike all the others. That's breathtaking. That's fascinating when you think about it. When you give thought to snow in that light, may I suggest two more lessons. These are developed in an interesting way in the Word of God. The first one, lesson number four, is attached to the concept of praise. Would you be turning to Psalm 148? Psalm 148, we'll look particularly at verse number eight. As you come to that chapter, one of the things you discover is that it is a great anthem of praise and adoration to God. But it's interesting, those entities that are offering the praise... Let me begin reading in verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise ye Him, all His angels. Praise ye Him, all His hosts. Praise ye Him, sun and moon. Praise ye Him, all ye stars of light. Praise Him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He also hath established them forever and ever. He hath made a decree which shall not pass. Praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons, and all ye deep, fire and hail, snow and vapors, stormy winds fulfilling His word. The chapter proceeds. But did you notice in the midst of this incredible assertion and requirement to praise the God of heaven, the sun and the moon and the stars are included? May I suggest in Job 38, verses 4 and following, the stars sing and they echo so loudly an anthem of praise to the one that made them. But you'll notice in verse number 8, included in this list is the snow. I hope you and I will never forget that although the snow again can cause some difficulty and inconvenience, it is a remarkable testimony to the great treasure in the mind of the one who made it and who fashioned the laws and physics and meteorology such that that snow will come about in the way that it does. 
those treasures of the snow and the praise that we should be able to offer to God, the snow should remind us of that. May you and I never forget the 148th Psalm. If it's true that these inanimate things like the sun and the moon and other matters, if they are in essence in some way fashioning a reminder of the need to praise God, how frequent should that be a part of your life and mine? We who are animate and we who are Christians, praise to God should be one of the things that's a regular part of our life, a part of what we do and a part of who we in fact are. That praise maybe is highlighted. As I began to give thought to this assertion, it is remarkable how many of the Psalms give a command to praise God. Well over 70 times in the 150 Psalms, there's a direct commandment that you and I should be praising God. And that's not just at times we assemble. Does your life and mine reflect that which would bring glory and honor to God? That fourth lesson about praise to God and snow as it encourages us toward that line brings us to lesson five. This fifth lesson I've entitled, Perhaps What Looks So Strange, Leprosy. Several of the biblical references to snow are found in contexts descriptive of leprosy. Let's develop that point like this and even learn some ideas about this. Let's begin by commenting from Exodus chapter 4, verse number 6. As you look back to that chapter, you find that Moses was the gentleman that was being spoken to by God, and he was being commissioned, you go and lead my people out of Egypt. Moses, you may recall, was reluctant. He was not terribly interested in that mission. God gave him several signs to equip him to let him know that God was with him, and to let others appreciate that God was with him. Verse number 6 reads like this, And the Lord said furthermore unto him, Put now thine hand into thy bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. One of the things that then was possible in that ancient era as the priests and others diagnosed an occurrence of leprosy, if the skin had a brilliant appearance, white like snow. You and I understand our skin, though white, is a somewhat dull white. If it's sufficiently bright, that would have been a clue to them of the possible occurrence of leprosy. Leviticus you may recall chapters 13 and 14 describe that in detail. But let's add to that list the following. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 10, here Moses' sister, her name was Miriam, you may recall that she made a poor choice. She, in fact, rebelled against the wisdom of God as well as the wisdom of Moses. And in verse number 10 of that chapter, the text reads like this, And the cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam became leprous, white, as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. In her rebellion against God and against Moses, God brought a sentence of judgment, a temporary one at that, upon her, and the way in which it was identified, Miriam became white, brilliantly so, leprous as snow. To that we might add this one in 2 Kings 5, 27. There it was 
Elisha's servant named Gehazi. You might recall that he also made a poor choice. Naaman had just been cleansed earlier in that chapter by dipping in the old waters of the Jordan River. But Gehazi, the very servant you see of Elisha, he wanted some of those very precious and, and pricey gifts. And so he told a lie. And the leprosy of Naaman came to be upon Gehazi. And it was said he was white, leprous and white like snow. Perhaps here's a lesson you and I could think about. Is it not true then that in regard to snow or that which connects to it, our God defines the particulars in His Word of how things are to be employed? May I suggest to you the human family is having a great deal of trouble this day and time with this concept. God defines His terms and He defines how they're to be utilized and He defines the manner in which they can be employed correctly. May I ask, what constitutes baptism? You and I have no idea apart from God's definition. And by His definition, pouring doesn't qualify. You can't pour water on someone's head and that would be a qualified baptism. Why not? Because God defines baptism and it's a burial. Romans chapter 6 verse 3. Maybe another example. What about male and female? and those who are able to legitimately enter into marriage. May I suggest, God defined in Genesis chapter 2 those lawful participants in marriage. Adam was a man, Eve was a woman. They could be identified by biological and anatomical differences. That today suffices. That is God's definition. If only the human family could again appreciate that God has defined the particulars of these things and even in regard to the snow. Because after all, here was an occasion in which at least reference to it was used in connection to leprosy. When those priests then diagnosed a person with leprosy, partly does the person's skin look white like snow? If so, that was a clue perhaps there's leprosy. Leviticus 13 and 14 detail that thought for us. The beauty of God's definition, the certainty of it, leads us to lesson six. Perhaps you were already anticipating this one. A number of those 25 Bible references to snow are in connection to purity. Let's develop that point and use it, in fact, to encourage ourselves along that same line of thinking to purity. Let's begin at the top. In Lamentations 4 verse 7, in the heart of the Old Testament, Jeremiah had these words as he made reference to the Nazarites. These individuals who had accepted the Nazarite vow, and they thus abstained from various and sundry things, God says through the prophet, those Nazarites are as pure as snow. Doesn't that highlight then that there's an attribute of purity in connection to snow? May I suggest that seems to be in relation to the whiteness of it. Can you think of a white any more brilliant than that of snow? Now you and I can go by Crayola colors and the white is pretty white and the white of a piece of paper is fairly white, admittedly. And the white of an aged man or woman's hair may be rather brilliant. 
But can you think of any greater brilliance in connection to a pure snow? Certainly the whiteness that comes with it leads me to call to your attention Psalm 51 verse 7. David penned these words. In many ways they're almost unforgettable. Listen to how David describes the snow and how he uses it to highlight purity. Psalm 51 verse number 7. David writing said, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. It may well be that snow reminds us of brilliant purity, but did you notice David said, God, if you will cleanse me, and in their attribute and consequence of that cleansing, I'll be purer than snow. I hope to develop over the next few moments in this lesson, the fact, I hope the snow will remind us of this. In its connection, we too should desire the purity that it at least suggests. I know that in the modern way you and I look at snow, it can look dirty, it can look polluted, and certainly after it lays on the ground a while, that's easy to see. But quite often, the whiteness that attaches to it should remind us of purity, and it's no wonder the color white is so often a reflection of it. And in Isaiah 1, verse 18, the lesson text that was read earlier tonight, God speaking through the prophet said, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. May the snow remind us of the need to be forgiven, the need to be cleansed, the need to be purified. God said, come now. He invites the people of Israel to come. They had made many mistakes and they had made many errors. Come now, let us reason together, He said. Though your sins be as scarlet, though your sins be covered over with red in the darkness and the blackness that attaches to ungodliness, Verse 18 said, They shall be as wool, white, taken away. You and I need that just as badly as they did. How dependent we are on the cleansed power that's available from God. To that, let's add this observation. Isn't it true then that as badly as we need that thought, doesn't that purity and that whiteness of snow also remind us of the purity of the God we serve? And there are a number of verses that develop that in some detail. May I call to your attention Daniel 7, verse number 9. As the prophet Daniel saw that remarkable vision, he observed that there was one sitting on the throne, white as snow. Our God is so pure. He isn't contaminated with sin. He doesn't approve sin in any context. And if you and I ever expect to live with Him, We've got to highlight and appreciate and desire ourselves to have that cleansed character and live in a pure and holy fashion. Later on in Revelation, you may notice in Revelation 1.14, what image is there given of Jesus? You may recall that John, what you see right in the book, and John saw the seven candlesticks and one in the midst of them. John, what do you see? He's white like snow. That's what John saw. How pure is the Son of God? 
How pure is His Word. How pure is the church that He purchased with His blood. May we desire to keep it that way, that we appreciate the nature of it. Perhaps one more thought. I'm sure you've already considered it. When I first mention the Mount of Transfiguration, what comes to your mind? In Matthew chapter 17 and in Mark chapter 9, Jesus there appeared on that mount, and there was Moses, and there was Elijah. And yet when it talks about the brilliance of the Lord, He appeared with His clothing brighter than the sun, glistening like snow. Now that description is of the Master. What's the realm beyond this earth going to be like? As you and I try to picture heaven, we know this much, absolute purity. Will there be an abundance of white? Maybe. In the Revelation, we notice John describes many attributes of it, and he does use brilliance in Revelation 21, verses 21 and following. We'll be in the spirit realm by that time. Will we appreciate white? Perhaps. We do know this. We appreciate the clothed character of our Master in white. We are said to be clothed like Him. I'd like to suggest it may well be we too will be equipped with this brilliant, glistening kind of article of clothing, and it will be the garment sufficient to our eternal realm and our eternal being. Let's close our lesson with that observation of Matthew 28, 3. There, after our Lord's crucifixion, and at the time just before His resurrection, those angelic beings were like white, were like snow. I hope all of this has brought us, perhaps with another picture or two, the calmness, the beauty, the serenity of snow. Perhaps in that light, many pictures could be added in abundance, but the idea is enough. We've used snow tonight to remind ourselves of biblical geography, melting snow, and God's control of these things. We've also highlighted in the process the treasures attached to snow, God's definition in connection to leprosy, and finally the purity and the whiteness that comes with it. Those things remind us of attributes of holiness, things that must be true of us. As the invitation is offered, the time of examination, of course, for each of us is, is certainly in place. I hope the snow reminds us of the control of our God and the desire that should be ours to live pure and cleansed in His sight. If there's anyone in this audience tonight who realizes that those things aren't true of you anymore, maybe they were at one time, but you have ceased to live faithfully. Your life has lacked the purity. It has lacked the connection and the whiteness that goes with that concept. We want you to know that God loves you, and He wants you to know that. And we'd like to be of assistance to you. If you'd like to make a confession of sin in a public way, be, be advised, nobody will look down on you. Nobody will judge you. We just want to encourage you. And we want to pray to God on your behalf. If tonight we could be of assistance to you in any of those ways, to make you again like snow, white and pure, We'd like to take care of that at once while together we stand and while we sing.